Hello, I'm Kathy. And I'm Gary, and this is Torah Talk. Welcome to Torah Talk, the intersection of the mundane and the miraculous. Here we have bold conversations about faith, culture, and politics, and where we fit into God's plans in the 21st century. If you could partner with God, would you? Welcome, everybody. It's great to have you here. Um, we have a really important topic today, um, as we always do, but a very timely topic at that because it's in the news um, everywhere you go, every newspaper, every television show, radio program. And of course, what we're talking about here is the current war in Ukraine. Yeah. And um, Gary in particular, Gary, you have a lot of personal experience with Ukraine because of the work you do. Yeah, yeah, I've spent, uh, I've been there a lot. <laughs> and, but more importantly than that is we have a lot of friends and coworkers there and their families. And um, this has been a hard time. We've been praying for them daily. And uh, thus far, thank God, they're, they're all safe and uh, they're still trying to do the work that we do. But yes, this is this has touched us all very, very closely. You know, when you see, I, I got to visit Ukraine one time in 2019 before everything closed down for COVID, and um, you see the news reports, and I, I think that a lot of the uh, reporters are being filmed from a location which is in the hotel that mm -hmm. I stayed at, looking out right there on Maidan, Maidan Square. Yeah, yeah. probably um, so. Uh, and that's always kind of surreal when mm. you you. You know, the time we were there, of course, there, it was peaceful, although it was after 2014, and there was stuff going on in the, in the eastern east, part, yeah. but nothing there. And so you see that, and the people talking about the, you know, the rockets coming in and all that, and it's just a really... Um, it obviously brings it closer to home. I got to meet some of the people who work with Gary uh, in as in for Ezra International, and it was... Um, yeah, lots of prayer for all of those people, and of course the work, uh, uh, the people that Ezra is trying to help yeah. to get out of there, the Jewish people. Because you know, in war, it's always the poor that the, suffer the most because they can't they have they can't leave. They, they don't, don't have, have any resources. That that is one of the things that is so amazing, and I would definitely be remiss if we did not mention this. It's the because I've always called them my true heroes, the the folks. Uh, on our team that are in Ukraine all had an opportunity to leave if they wanted to. We gave them that option. Not one of them took us up on that option. They all desired to stay. And the reason for staying was because when they, Jewish people needed their help, they wanted to be there. Wow. And, and that's just, that is just so commendable. And so these are, um, later I'm going to be talking about, you know, our, our fishermen, as we've always mm -hmm. called them, and the reasons why. This is, this is why I truly believe they are disciples of Yeshua. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Even when I was there in good times, and I saw the work that they did. I mean, the work, you know, you, you, you like to think that you're doing God's work. It, it looks really kind of exciting on the <laughs> ground. But usually it doesn't, you it's, know. It's, <laughs> the picking up of people and taking them to the airport and the um, lots of times in the van and yeah. driving around the countryside, it's it's not glorious. <laughs> no, in fact, I've often said it doesn't look like a miracle. But it is, but 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 our tag. One of our taglines is where the miraculous meets the mundane. Mm -hmm. uh, this is where God's miracle is being performed. We are the hands and feet of God as we perform this and schlepping bags and is part of it. Is part of, is part of it. It may seem mundane. It doesn't sound very glamorous. It's not, but it's part of the greater miracle. And I, I was so uh, blessed to be able to witness that myself and 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 be part of that. So what I'd like to do today is um, you've heard, I'm sure the audience has heard and learned more about Ukraine uh, in the last few weeks than probably you ever knew about. That's probably sure. And, but um, I want to go back over some of it, um, some of its history and um, tensions that have kind of always been there, issues that have always been there that are still playing out in Ukraine. Um, you know, if you go back, the, the, the name Ukraine and um, actually means borderland in both Ukrainian and Polish, mm. okay? Um, so um, 
this area belonged to Russia between the 18th and the 20th century, and before that, it belonged to Poland. And before that, it's gone back yeah. in hands, as, as most, most lands have. Um, but it is borderland. Um, and so the Russians and the Poles have historically sought to kind of um, undermine or deny the existence of any kind of independent Ukraine. Russia, in particular, uh, refers to Ukraine as uh, Little Russia or Southern Russia, as it's part of Russia. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe, if I'm right, that concept that we we hear people on the news calling it the Ukraine. Yeah, the Ukraine. As opposed to Ukraine? Because they got so used to it being part of, well, during the Soviet Union days. And and you described it, borderland, you could say the borderland. The borderland. They could say the Ukraine, as if it were just a a portion of, of greater Russia. Yeah, and they, yes, and they still do it. rather than an independent country. Well, people do it all the time. All the time. They get used uh, so to it. So I listen to it on the news all the time, and I hear mm-hmm. the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And I know that when my daughter traveled there, and she did a... a, a kind of an educational uh, thing when she got back at people and she goes, whatever you do, let's not call it the Ukraine. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> let's call it Ukraine. Um, you know, in the 19th century, there was a state Russian kind of a theorist and he said, little Russia, which he's referring to Ukraine was always a tribe and never a people and still less it, a state. They have a really firm feeling that that Ukraine is part of Russia. Yeah, well, we, we can see. I think Putin claims to feel that way. And yes. Uh, there's a, a, no, no getting in his mind. I know we're going to try a little bit today, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, he claims to feel that way completely. You know, um, Ukraine. For those of you who don't know, is famous for its um, its black earth. The black earth, the Ukraine. Ukraine. It, it's known as the breadbasket of mm-hmm. all of Europe. That that. Is, is the river called the Dnieper River? It's spelled with a D in. Yeah, I've, I've heard it both ways, the Dnieper or Nipper. Nipper, okay. Nipper, Nipper. Yes. Most uh, people in English now say Nipper. Okay. Even the town uh, became Nipper. Okay. Uh, it was used to be Dnieper for Trost. But uh, I, I've said Dnieper and Nipper. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. um, you know, that kind of river valley uh, of this river. Um, it's been said that no better crops grow anywhere than along its banks. And, you know, this black earth allows for two harvests each year. Winter wheat is planted in August and harvested in July, August, and spring grains are planted in April, May, and harvested in October. It really, truly is the breadbasket oh, yeah. of, of Europe. You remember that long train ride you took down to Odessa? How many, that was how many fields all of that. did you see? Yes. You know, uh, sunflowers and, and wheat? And I saw uh, none of them because it was nighttime. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have spent, I've spent a lot of time on those trains, uh, and I've taken the, the daytime train and you see a lot of it you know you know so russia has always had no interest in conceding that its agricultural bread bread basket really has an independent identity and spirit okay Mm. they're they're not okay with that they're not okay with and 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 clearly when you're there it it has an independent spirit oh yeah yeah you know so you know what's interesting the whole battle for ukraine has not always been just a physical battle on the ground but probably more importantly uh, the battle for control of Ukraine has always had an intellectual component as well. And ever since the Europeans began to debate the meaning of nations and nationalism, historians, writers, journalists, poets, um, actors, and so forth, they've always argued over the extent of Ukraine and the nature of Ukrainians. Mm. And I know that when my daughter was there working with the, the, the theater uh, folks, that still exists today, that within yeah. those themes of what is Ukraine, who is a Ukrainian, uh, the, being proud about being Ukraine, yes. run all through the, that theater crowd. Yeah, I think I think that was promoted in, in their collective memory of how Russia was such an oppressor in, in the, the days past. I mean, we you know, one one a great example is the Holodomor, which again, a lot of people probably have never heard of. Um, but as now that word Holodomor, now if I'm I'm right, that's a mixture of a couple different uh, Ukrainian words. Ukrainian words, right? Yeah. So what is it? One of them was um, Holod for hunger. Yes. And more for extermination. Oh, uh, hunger extermination. Hunger and see extermination. again, that is in the collective memory of Ukrainian people when it comes to their uh, let's just say hatred 
for Russia. Uh, maybe not necessarily the Russian people, because I know even our director in Ukraine has family in Russia, and they're very well, very much connected, the two countries that way. But the leadership has always been the oppressor. If we go look back to Stalin, as early as 1928, he established an economic five-year plan to turn the Soviet Union into an industrial powerhouse. Yeah, I think he called it the five-year plan. There you go. And and he he turned his agricultural state into a controlled, collectivized farm system. And the prime target for collectivization would be Ukraine, the breadbasket of Europe. You just described it. They wanted to control that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they saw that as a means to make communism look like a great system that could export to the entire world. You know, Gary, you and I both read the book uh, Red Famine by Ann Applebaum. Mm -hmm. And I remember some of the um, descriptions. She even had pictures. She had pictures of those of the famine. And but what I remember, he was trying to he he took all of the independent farms, the peasants who had those farms, and he he wanted to he, he engaged in collectivization. I think right. they called it. Right. The, the state took over the, the typical communist approach: yes. collective collectivized farms. Instead of instead of having independent farmers, they were to bring everything that they they grew to the state. To the state, and then he started exporting it. Stalin exported the grain that that Ukrainians needed to live on. You know, here it was flowing out the port of Odessa, and Ukrainians were starving to death, literally starving to death. I remember reading that, and I guess I'm not understanding the motivation behind someone for doing that besides evil i mean i guess sometimes it's just spiritual evil i you know i think ultimately people are starving either you don't know and and there was a time i remember reading when there were people stalin's allies who were trying to say wait 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 we need to stop this Mm -hmm. but he doubled down he doubled down and a lot of those people would disappear exactly yeah yeah this this um this evil motivation or whatever it was, I mean, again, he wanted to look like, to the world like this communist experiment was thriving. That's probably part of what it was, Yeah, is he wanted it to look to the world. So if they're exporting things, then exactly. it looks like it's working. It looks like it's working because, you know, okay. look, 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 you know, you say you've got a better system. No, look at us. We're feeding the world here. And at the same time, millions of Ukrainians were, were starving to death. But don't look at that. But don't look at that. Yeah, right. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. The, the, the estimates take it from three to four million, but other estimates, some estimates take it up to 10 million people starved to death because of Stalin's strong arm policies. I, I remember that. And I also remember in the book, um, at the end, it was talking about, it really wasn't until after the fall of the Soviet Union that they really started to even kind of look at those numbers yeah. more. Because, of course, Stalin would have hidden those numbers. Yeah, of know? course. When you're in f- full control of the media, full control of what, what message goes out to the world, you can hide the numbers. And uh, there were reports getting out of course, that this was happening, but uh, it just, it, most of the world was oblivious to the fact that these people were starving. You know, let's talk about the media and let's, the role of the media yeah, because this story has probably one of the most now infamous media stories connected yeah. to it. Yeah, it does. Sadly, uh, this Walter Durani of the New York Times, I'm sure is what you're referring to. Yes. And he was a correspondent uh, in, in Moscow from 1922 to 1936. He actually won a Pulitzer Prize um, for his article about Stalin's five-year plan. So, I, again, I, I can't get in his head, but it seems to me that his chumming up with a world leader... And his article uh, and, and his Pulitzer, uh, Pulitzer Prize, sorry guys, I'm struggling with my voice here today, uh, is, um, was more important than the truth. You know, I, I have a quote, and when I've talked about um, Ukraine, I've used this quote literally of Durante's, and it was published on March 31st, 1933. 
He said, there is no actual starvation or deaths from starvation, but there is widespread mortality from diseases due to malnutrition. What? That is starvation. These, Widespread mortality due to diseases from malnutrition. You know, That's the definition. We, we see this idea, this spin still today where you can just use words. Using words, to, yes. to, to, to try to cover up the truth in any way, shape, or form, and, 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 people, and people believe it. They, if you don't look a little bit deeper, you read the first thing, there is no starvation. Okay, great. Right. There's no starvation. You don't go any deeper than that. Right. Literally read the next part of the sentence, and he's saying, but, you know, everybody's dying from malnu- malnutrition. Right. They, okay? they, they know what they're doing. They, they that's do, why but, head, headlines can be so deceiving. But that's what's so disturbing about... Um, uh, other people responding to the media and not doing a little more homework. There were, at the time, reporters who knew what was going Mm. on. Their voices were not uh, amplified like Durante's at the New York Times, okay? That's the paper of record. That's the paper of truth, um, so to speak. I mean, mean, (laughs) I'm not not saying it's the paper of record. (laughs) But that's what they think, right? And, you know, he was just out now lying for well i got a pulitzer prize yeah and 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 the the oh here i go with that evil word again you know uh he just always saying okay there's another thing in a report of famine in russia is an exaggeration or malignant propaganda funny that he used that word yeah you know since the projected harvest was even better than the previous year but see the double speak there that 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 lie i mean that's that's a little bit of truth the harvest was better than it was the year before because they forced them into these quotas. They took everything. But they took it away and yes. people starved to death. That is such, that I will call that evil because yes. for in this elitist attitude, he did not care about the peasant farmers dying all over Ukraine. And if I remember from what I read is, is Durante saw it oh, and, 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 it and he still... He's yeah. still whatever uh, was deceived or deliberate. Mm. I I don't know. I think he enjoyed his his wine and steak dinners with Stalin too much. Yes, I think so. You know, the famine was only like half the story. Like I said, there's always been this intellectual component with what's going on for control of Ukraine. So while the peasants were dying in the countryside, and those pictures are horrific, and they they literally were shooting people if they were trying to leave oh, yeah. because they were starving. And they that, were turning each other, the neighbor upon neighbor. Oh, they were and, making and them exactly. report. Exactly. And there was like a secret police that would come in uh, to people's homes yeah. and find any amount of food that they possibly tearing open. I remember tearing open their um, mattresses, Mm. digging in the ground, uh, killing their pets, because that could be food or whatever it was. It was horrific. But, you know, there was also that's that was horrible part of the story but there was also this attack on the ukrainian intellectuals the ukrainian um, politicians it was a campaign of slander repression against professors museum curators writers artists priests theologians everybody who's purveyors of ideas Mm. Okay, because the the ideas and the words are powerful and they had to stop that. So these are all people in their own way uh, who are purveyors of ideas, just like you and right. I are purveyors of ideas. Right. Okay, someone who would, would, would actually be bold enough to t- share the other side exactly, of the story. Exactly. Well, so, and in a case where the artist, you know, art is so powerful and getting a message across. And, yeah. and the artist, historically, art has always has. Uh, kind of filled that gap it's always been anti-establishment we don't see that so much anymore we Mm, see it kind of walking hand in hand yeah yeah, with establishment but in ukraine that was definitely the case you know at the time so those were the people taken out um it's just a um 
could they have used against those people you're spreading misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation? I, I will bet you it was a very similar narrative back then. They, you know, you're, you're enemies of the state because you know you're hurting the people with these. You know, in their case, they would call them lies. Right. When in fact it was the truth. Exactly. Yeah. You know what's sad? You know, quickly I'm going to go back to Walter Duranty and the whole media thing. Um, in 2003, you'd, you'd, you'd like to think, okay, maybe the New York Times kind of came to its senses and saw what was going on, but the Pulitzer Board in 2003 declined to revoke the award and uh, said that the articles which it examined in making the award did not contain, quote, clear and convincing evidence of deliberate deception. <sighs> Okay, there's just words there. Delib what's deliberate deception? It's turning your head from what you see. Deliberate deception? No, yeah. maybe not. But you know, by this definition, that's once again, it's that it's that use of words. You know, it, it's it's the Bill Clinton saying, "Define what you mean by is." Yes. You know, it, yes. because here he's saying that there. The, the, I mean, obviously there was clear evidence that this happened. And Durante missed it. At the very least, let's give him, all right, let's for a moment give him benefit of the doubt and say he missed it all. Well, that in itself should have been reason to remove the prize, right? Because he was there on, in, on the ground and he missed it. Yes, but whatever I, you get a prize for that if you missed right, it. Right, <laughs> right. But they, they used you know, the, no evidence of deliberate deception as they're, they're out to, to allow him to, to keep this award. Oh, uh, I, I just, it's, it's mind boggling. It, it, to it totally is. So you're talking about, you know, um, beginning of the uh, 20th century. We're not talking about thousands and thousands of years ago that right. these things happened. Same time frame as World War II and what mm -hmm. was going on with Hitler and so forth, you know. But if you fast forward a little bit, in 1991, um, Ukraine declared independence. And that was in the face of the fact that the Soviet Union was falling, okay? Yeah. It did it did fall with the help of our wonderful president, Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really been only since then that um, uh, historians and, and people searching for truth have been able to find out more about what was happening in, uh, in Stalin's Ukraine right. at that time, you know? But, okay, so, uh, you know, Ukraine had this... Uh, time of independence. It, it's experienced a little bit of independence here it and did. there, usually pretty brief and short. Yeah, lived. but you can understand why they were so anxious to break ties with the Soviet Union when it fell because of the history that we just shared. Exactly. You know, in 2010, a Russian backed uh, uh, Victor Yanukovych was elected president. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some, and then we fast forward and we go to 2014, we have that Maidan revolution. Am I saying? In that right that is correct yes. made on yeah it actually means square a lot of times we say made in square made on square square square. <laughs> square square but um that's the that place that you were talking about overlooking from your hotel and and what we're seeing so much on the news these days um but when i went there in 2014 actually i was there uh, on at least at least two occasions maybe more um but i remember going and seeing the tent uh Village tent village set up on on uh, Krishatic Street. Remember that main thoroughfare uh, off of Maidan. Um, they were determined to bring about change in Ukraine. They were fighting against corruption. They were fighting against the Russian influence. And Yanukovych was was now being seen as a Russian puppet, much like uh, you know the president in Belarus is today. And so the last straw for him was when he failed to sign an association free trade agreement with the EU. Um, that sparked the, the, the riots. They became violent. And what happened was, and I was there two weeks prior to the, this breaking out. Um, I had left and I, I, I get home and, you know, start seeing all this going on um, in the very streets that I had just been walking. Um, they, they started uh, lighting fires and, you know, burning tires and things of that nature. And Yanukovych started feeling the pressure. And it's believed, nobody knows for sure who the shooters were, but it's believed Yanukovych ordered government snipers to start shooting into the crowd. And about 130 people were killed at that time, including uh, uh, policemen for, for uh, Ukraine. Um, but the pressure mounted 
and Yanukovych had to flee. He went to Russia, of all places. So yeah, I think their their suspicions they were probably right. Their about suspicions that. <laughs> must have been correct. So he goes to Russia, and now I was back in uh, Ukraine um, during that summer. That happened in February of of, of 2014. The coldest time of year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, then uh, I was back in the summer, and the tents were still there because they were going to hold the, the, the government's feet to the fire. They wanted change. They wanted real change. And so Russia saw this as this turmoil at the time as a perfect opportunity to annex Crimea and start the war in the Donbass region through what they called Russian separatists. But obviously they were infiltrated with a lot of Russian special ops. It was, and lots of propaganda involved in that oh, too, oh yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, again, taking advantage of this vacuum, this void of leadership and this the struggles in Kiev, they they took the Crimea and they took uh, they, they started the war in Donbass. That Donbass region has been in war for eight years now. So Ukraine is not... Uh, it's not new, but now the the scale of it is so much so much greater. So uh, the, the, again, this struggle with Russia has gone on for a, a long, long time. You know, you see that when you visit Ukraine, that that kind of struggle or constant tension. When I was there in twenty nineteen, when you're in Kiev, uh, there's a, a fierce. Uh, independent Ukrainian spirit yeah. and the flags everywhere mm-hmm. and the blue and yellow flower boxes painted yeah. and buildings everything. painted with buildings that color. painting with the blue and the yellow toilet paper with Putin's face on it yes exactly <laughs> exactly yes oh, um, so it's it's very very clear when you're there but you, you yeah. mentioned you know we got on that train and we went to Odessa mm-hmm. and there's a whole different thing going down there because I remember uh, my friend who was with me uh, we get to the hotel in Odessa and she was trying to learn a little bit of a little Ukrainian a little Russian just in case because both of those languages are spoken throughout the country oh, okay yeah. and uh, so she asked the person at the counter which she would prefer I think she was saying thank you or something and uh, the, the Russian or the Ukrainian and quite honestly I don't remember what they are but um, she said oh we are Russian and so oh. my friend's like okay (laughs) so use the the russian word that was a very different thing than up in kiev where they were ukrainian yeah the the sentiment definitely exists and and there was um i mean there's different numbers that you see about those who are maybe pro-russian i've seen up numbers up to 30 percent but i i think that might be vastly changing right now because ukrainians are pulling together and they see what russia is doing to them but um, that, I guess, will be a, a, a discussion for another day when we see what happens with this war. You know, there was one other thing I wanted to mention before we go into a, a kind of related topic to all of this. And this is, once again, my observation when I was there. Um, this, you know, Ukraine has had a sad history. Mm-hmm. It's, been, uh, it's been oppressed. It's been under the thumb of so many different um, uh, empires and so forth, and and what happened to it uh, during World War II yeah. when the Nazis came in was awful, um, and so it's uh, in under communism and so forth. And I remember noticing when I was in, particularly in Kiev, it's I think it's the spirit within man that's that wants freedom. Mm. They want freedom and they want beauty, and there was so much beauty. Um, I, I saw it in the the colors, like I was the bright colors everywhere and flowers. The buildings were painted in beautiful bright mm-hmm. colors. I mean, yes, there's the old style Soviet apartments that were dull gray. You know, you can't paint a thirty you know <laughs> story apartment or what apartment building. But independently, uh, in the artistry and the I guess just the expression of these Ukrainians of of beauty they were trying to get to beauty we even laughed gary because i don't know how many times i took pictures of bathrooms in public places which i never do 
because they were beautiful <laughs> and creative. There was so much creativity. Yeah. We called each other in, you know, on the tour and said, you've got to see this bathroom, <laughs> you know? And so the creativity, even down to the bathrooms, I, to me, it just, I was like this spirit within people mm. um, from God, you know, that seeks out beauty and harmony and freedom. Yeah. They wanted that, what? even down to their bathrooms. That you're yeah, in. that's a great point. I think once you've tasted freedom, you know, it's very difficult to to go back to oppression again. That's what I. That's what I, I've been hearing uh, from people all over the world as you watch the news. Uh, like let's for example in in Canada when the uh, trucking trucking convoy was happening, um, I heard from one man who was from Iran, and one man who was I think uh, Romania, and both of them said the same thing. He says, you know, we we left this, we left uh, oppression, we left this kind of uh, you know lack of freedom. We don't want to lose it again. All over the world, built into man, every every man and woman is mm. that desire for freedom. I I know I saw it um, a, a month or so ago. I was in Dallas uh, with my daughter, and we went to a Toastmasters uh, meeting. And this particular club had many, many immigrants mm. in there um, that were learning uh, English and bless their hearts, going to a Toastmasters to uh, give speeches. Wow. I mean, could you imagine going to another country and then joining Toastmasters and giving a speech in, Incredible. I don't know, Ukrainian or whatever it is? <laughs> yeah. I, I, most people can barely do it in their own language, right. and I was so impressed. But what really got me was their themes, their themes of freedom. Beautiful. And they, they expressed the exact thing that you just saw. There were people saying, I came here mm -hmm. to get away from oppression, right. and now I see it here. Right. What are you guys thinking? Mm -hmm. You know, and and this was I, this this particular man was from Nepal. I mean, it was from people from all, all over, over the world. Yeah. Have that God given desire for freedom because God gives us freedom. Yeah, you know, and so it's expressed in every culture and every race and uh, every person. Um, and of course, then Satan will try to uh, squash that, yeah. you know, and uh, that's what we see in under particularly these totalitarian regimes. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to talk about the motivation of those totalitarian regimes here in a moment. But one last thing uh, you mentioned in Applebaum a moment ago and the Red Famine, she spoke of, of Putin's greatest fear. Uh, was that the same of Stalin's? But Putin's fear after seeing the 2014 revolution in Ukraine and the people chanting and and wait, you know wanting the rid to rid their government of corruption and to um, wave European flags and American flags. That's Putin's worst nightmare yes. because he doesn't want that to happen on his streets. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I want to talk a little bit um, about Putin and his motivations mm. um, because there's really something there. And, and Gary, you and I have kind of seen some uh, response to Putin that's a little concerning to us. Yeah. Um, so let's um, take a short break and then come back and let's talk about Putin. For over 25 years, Ezra International has been helping the poorest of the poor Jewish people escape poverty and persecution. In fact, almost 80,000 Jewish people have now returned to Israel with our help. The average cost to rescue one Jewish person is $360. Your gift of just $30 a month over one year can help return a Jewish person to Israel and restore their hope for a better future. Please go to EzraInternational.org and give your best gift today. Okay, welcome back. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about um, Putin and some of his motivations. But, you know, this is Torah talk, so we want to talk a little bit about Torah, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, this is kind of a special that we're doing here on, on Ukraine. But there are some uh, verses in the Bible that we've mentioned before to our audience that we think perfectly describe what's going on today and particularly with men like Putin and their motivations. Mm -hmm. So let's turn to Torah and see what, what the Torah says about this. Yeah. Great idea. Um, first of all, the Torah is, is filled with, um, uh, mentioning the promise of God to, to the Jewish people that they would have their homeland. 
And we also see within the first five books in Deuteronomy, we also see the idea of the Jewish people being scattered into the nations, but then one day being regathered. And then when we turn to the prophets, we see the, uh, the affirmation of that, that in the latter days that the Jewish people would return to the reestablished Jewish state. And one of the <clears throat> passages, excuse me, one of the passages that we uh, find fascinating in, in our day is in Jeremiah uh, 16, and starting in verse 14 and 15, uh, it describes the fact that no longer will God's name be known as the God who brought him out of the land of Egypt, but the God who brought them out of the lands of the north and all the nations that he scatters them. And that's a big, big deal because for the Jewish people, um, the God who brought them out of Egypt is celebrated every year at Passover. Absolutely. That's, that's how they're kind of defined. They are. Well, God even defined himself that way in did. the beginning of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Yes. Uh, that's big how, deal. That is a big deal. That's how important this is. And for 3,500 years, he's been known as that God, and he, he, he wanted to be known as that God. But then through the prophets, we're told that his reputation would change as the God who brought them out of the land of the north and all the nations that he scattered them. And so, this is all in relation to where Israel is, so north of Israel? Yes, yes. Ukraine, north of Israel, and, and the land of the north seems to be a key and the fall of the Soviet Union seems to have been that, you know, that spark of this wave of Aliyah, this return of Jewish people back to the land of Israel. Now, with that said, verse 16 becomes very fascinating when it comes to, in relation to Putin. And somebody's going to say, what? You know, Putin's in the Bible, not necessarily named by, by, by uh, Jeremiah. But listen to, to what he says. Now, first of all, I mentioned our, our, uh, our team in Ukraine, and of course, we have them all over the world. And they stayed in U in Ukraine, as I said earlier. And you know, Yeshua said, "Greater love has no man than he that would lay down his life for a, a friend or a brother." So, our people have done just that. They're willing to lay down their lives to help the Jewish people get home to Israel. So we rightly call them and have called them since the beginning fishermen. Let me read verse sixteen. Behold. I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. And, and the them there is the Jewish the people. The Jewish people. Right? And your people appropriately being described as fishermen. I believe so, because the most famous fishermen of all time were disciples of Yeshua. And the most famous hunter? The most famous hunter, we go to the Bible. If, if Jeremiah is using biblical uh, imagery here, then we have to follow suit. Where, where's the most famous hunter? The first hunter we find is Nimrod. Nimrod is, is, is found in, uh, in Genesis right before we see the narrative about God choosing Abram, Abraham. And he was known for his Tower, Tower of Babel uh, incident. And this is what... Josephus says about Nimrod, the historian Josephus says, he gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from their fear of God, but to bring them into constant dependence on his power. Now, that sounds like the godfather of, of all tyrannical governments. This is, you think of fascism, communism, dictatorships, all totalitarian governments follow this model. Make people dependent on you, and you make them less dependent on God, or to forget about God. Mm -hmm. And that's why I describe Putin as a hunter. And I, and I believe now you're seeing people being searched out of the holes of the rocks, the rubble in Ukraine, which is something that just struck me recently when I was watching those images. And I think it's all because of a guy like Putin. So what we have here is... I firmly believe, and, I, and you do too, is prophecy being fulfilled in our day. Absolutely. And it, while the world is looking on and we can see all of this, most people look on and they don't recognize that this is prophecy no, being fulfilled in not. our day. Yeah. Um, and it, it is so important for God's people to see, know, and understand that. Absolutely. You know, Putin, we've been hearing some... Um, I don't know, just a rumor, some talk, you know, chatter, maybe I'll call it chatter, on, on Facebook. And, and even though 
there are things that Putin is doing and people recognize it as very, very bad. There is a, there's a line of discussion in there about Putin um, maybe not being quite as bad as he has been portrayed by the media, mm-hmm. um, that maybe he's somebody that we have some something in common with yeah, and these. so forth. And um, so I, I want to spend the next part of our podcast really – Uh, just kind of warning people to be really, really careful and wise about who we choose to have alliances with. You know, we need to have lots of wisdom to decide who we're going to trust, um, who we're going to hold hands with, and so forth. Um, I'm reminded of Isaiah 31, and it says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they, they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Mm. I love that verse. It, 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 it just reminds me that where are we going to seek our help? Where, who's going to be our strong man, so to speak, right. not to turn to man? And we've had some problems with that. I think we've done that when we look to presidents in the Mm -hmm. past, looking to people as our strength and our hope. Like, this is our only hope. And we have to be careful with this. Um, There's an interesting story that I heard when I was listening to to Glenn Beck, and he was telling the story about Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington. After our revolution and and Washington was uh, president, uh, the French Revolution began. And that's a, um, it's late 1700s, so after our, our revolution. And in discussions, Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson both believed that George Washington should in some way make some efforts to have America support the efforts of the French Revolution. And they vehemently argued over this issue. And Washington... I, I love Washington. He was just a wise man. He was there for such a time as this. Uh, he was he was so wise. He kept telling Thomas Paine that there was no way that America was going to step in on the side of the French Revolution. And so um, he said that their definition of uh, what they were doing, their revolution was not the same as ours in any way. Um, ours was based on God-given rights, and on and and the people, the Americans believed in them. In France, Washington saw that this wasn't so. He, the people wanted freedom. That that was true, but they did not really recognize where their freedom came from. Mm. That they wanted. They just wanted pe- freedom because everybody wants freedom. But if you don't recognize where freedom comes from, then things can get out of hand very, very quickly. Very important uh, distinction, isn't it? Yes, it really is. So I, I, I read and I read some more about this. You know, like I said, I first heard it on the radio, but then I went and looked at it and I, I looked more. And Thomas Paine actually went to France to work on to, to, to join this cause. And he's writing, you know, that's what Thomas Paine did. He was actually instrumental in promoting, um, uh, getting encouragement behind our revolution. So he was really good at, at that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he goes over to France and um, he, he starts writing in support. Everything is all good until the guillotines come out. <laughs> and then it's not so good anymore. So that's a big problem. And Washington was exactly right. He recognized the source of the French Revolution. And he said, we cannot join hands with that. Why, that wisdom. is not what wisdom. Amazing. Uh, amazing. So then, as I was listening, um, Glenn goes on to tell a story about post-World uh, War I Germany. Okay, we've, we've talked about this before. You know, the German people um, during World War I had kind of been worked up and kind of been taught, even within the church, that God had ordained this war and that they would be victorious. 
uh-oh. Okay, so when they weren't, there was a deep despair, a disenchantment with the church. Like, how can you say this? Um, reminds me a little bit about the um, prophets when I'm, we had our last election saying that Trump yeah, was yeah. going to be president again. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't. Right. And you're like, what? So th- those people were speaking about things that they really should not. They have were been not truly hearing all. from God. But no. what was happening is that the church had lost all of its moorings. Um, you know, when Hitler was on the rise, the church was meeting to contemplate removing the Old Testament from the Bible because it was too Jewish. It had lost well, its way. There, there's your major warning sign. There's right your there. major mor- warning sign. You know, so the, the New, church the has lost its church way, doesn't recognize and people didn't believe in the church anymore. Mm. Um, you know, so when Hitler came to power, um, many Christians welcomed him and Nazism. Okay, because he portrayed himself. Mm, I'm yeah. not going to say as a believer, but he connected himself to Christianity. To Christianity that's yeah. why they say, yeah. okay, well, Hitler was a Christian. Right. We know that's not true. Right. But that's why many Jewish people to this day believe that was a Christian exactly. event. Exactly. Yes. So he persuaded, I found this really interesting thing where he uses a statement, positive Christianity. Um, it was part of the 1920 Nazi platform. And I, I just want to read it because I find it interesting, really fascinating. We demand the freedom of all religious confessions in the state insofar as they do not jeopardize the state's existence or conflict with the manners and moral sentiments of the Germanic race. The party as much as such upholds the point of view as a positive Christianity without tying itself confessionally to any one confession. (laughs) It combats the Jewish materialistic spirit at home and abroad and is convinced that a permanent recovery of our people can only be achieved from within on the basis of the common good before the individual good. So he's making this, speaking out of two sides of his Mm -hmm. mouth here, he's like, okay, we have this positive Christianity, but we're not going to tie ourselves to any one particular confession. Like if you think Jesus is the Savior, we're not tying ourselves to you. Well, that is Christianity. Okay, come on. (laughs) You you use the word Christianity and positive Christianity to to draw people in, but they do not want to jeopardize the state's existence. In other words, if you're a Christian and you see through this, and you want to fight what the Nazis were doing. No, you're jeopardizing the state. And exactly. You're like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, for, Ex- for Exactly, example. yes, yeah. exactly. So, you know, and then, it, it, and then of course, he ties it in with his anti-Semitism, uh, you know, saying the Jewish materialistic spirit, okay, at home and abroad. So basically, that's idea, the, the idea of the Jews have taken over the world, mm-hmm. okay? And so... And so he said, we we have to recover who we are, is what he was saying. So he was making an appeal to the people. Now, remember, the German people at that time in the Weimar Republic uh, were greatly suffering. The, their, their dollar, so to speak, was worth mm-hmm. nothing. Okay, literally, they had their wheelbarrows full of money to buy bread. Uh, they had been blamed for the entire war, World War One, And it, it, the situation was really bad for them. So when they heard, heard Hitler uh, at the time, this sounded kind of like an affirmation of Christian values to them. Yeah. And he, he kind of appealed to that. So he kind of took on the mantle of the church because remember the church was weak and right. the church had had given up its power and its authority well, remember in a previous episode i mentioned that he made a, a treaty with the catholic church and said he was only continuing the work of the church and then you have martin luther who 400 years prior had conditioned nazi germany or germany and in europe um, to believe that the jewish people were somehow subhuman or evil. And so when these things are read, not a Christian, in, not many, of course, the vast majority, never raised an eyebrow. They never, oh gosh, it's so sad. So you know what What Hitler did is he kind of offered kind of new meaning, new purpose. He said, we're going to return to, to tra- traditional German values, which mm. included the church in some way kind of, kind of form as long as it didn't threaten the state, according right. to him. Um, they So he created a lot of confusion 
But the church really kind of set itself up oh, yeah. to allow for this confusion. Yeah. And, and yeah. so it has a strong response, a well, big if responsibility. The, if the church truly knew the word of God, they would have resisted this, this statement completely. Completely. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. They didn't know it, that whole thing about right. the, the Jewish materialistic spirit. Right. Yes, exactly. So they didn't know the word of God. No. For whatever reason, they were not reading it themselves. They were just sitting on the pews of the church listening to somebody else. What they didn't have time, mm. they were busy with their jobs and working. Sounds yeah. familiar, very familiar, you know. Nothing um, changed on Facebook or whatever the version <laughs> of that was back then, <laughs> you know. So now I want to fast forward to what's going on now with Putin. Um, Hitler was saying things that some of the things sounded pretty good and sounded right. Okay, there was some truth in some of the things like returning to traditional values mm. sounded good, okay? Always, yeah. that That's good. Putin's doing the exact same thing. He's saying some things that are right. He's saying some things that are based on the Bible, but it's all just a little bit off, mm. okay? Now, one of the biggest ones is in, to, in 2020, Putin said that gay marriage will not be legalized in the country as long as he is in charge. Okay. People in the church hear that and they say, okay, I can agree with Putin right. on that. All right. Um, so they, they're like, okay, maybe he's right. We want to return to the, these values that we hold, these traditional uh, biblical-based values. Well, Putin's doing that. Yeah. I, I, I've heard that very trope on, on the internet of it. You know, he's somehow protecting the Western Christianity uh, here. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth. I, 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 I think he, he could have made a very similar statement to exactly what Hitler did. As long as it doesn't threaten the state, your little bit of religion is right. fine. Okay, right. have your religion as long as I'm in charge. That goes back to Nimrod. Okay, you're dependent on me. Right. Okay, so... I was um, I was I was actually out in Texas a, a, a few uh, a few weeks ago, and I I got the privilege of sitting in on Glenn Beck's program, and he had an, uh, a guest that day. I was there, Benjamin Teitelbaum, mm -hmm. and he'd written a book called War for Eternity. Oh, great. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and he made a point that uh, Putin made a speech uh, this year. And it was in February, and he claimed in it that Ukraine is an inalienable part of Russian history, culture, and spiritual space. Um, okay, so, yeah, it is true that they have a mix of their history and their there, culture. There's, a, there's a, a little bit of truth mixed there's in there. There's a little yeah. bit of truth in there. But what uh, Teitelbaum was saying is that what he, he kind of zeroed in on was this spiritual space comment, and that really concerned him a lot. And so as they were talking about it, they were talking about Putin's motives for invading Ukraine. Of course, one of, his, one of them is the policy-based motive. Let's keep the U.S. and NATO off of his border. That's been a biggie, okay? U.S. and NATO off of the border, important to him, okay? We don't have to go into a lot of detail there. But the second one is the spiritual mandate to collect Russia's lost children. So let's look at this again. Putin has two motives for invading Ukraine. One is policy-based, but the second one is spiritually based, mm. a spiritual mandate to collect Russia's lost children. Wow. Of course, who are those children? Those who were part of the former Soviet bloc nations, okay, right. which included Ukraine, the Balkan states, and mm -hmm. so forth, okay? Now, Putin has an advisor, a fascinating and very evil man <laughs> named Alexander Dugan. He's a philosopher, professor. He's an author. He's written quite a few books. You can go find Dugan um, on Amazon.com and, and find out exactly what he believes. He is an advisor to Putin. And one of his, um, one thing that he believes is time doesn't move in a linear fashion, but in cycles. Um, and except rare occasions when there is a type of apocalyptic explosion and destruction of the current world order and then we are reborn into a new golden age wow. great okay <laughs> it reminds me well okay let me hold that he sees 
that there is justification for promoting chaos to push toward this apocalyptic explosion. So create the chaos that is necessary to move us toward the apocalypse because that is getting us closer. Yeah, it's scary. Okay. But some of that is like, okay, when you look at the Bible, we go through this apocalyptic thing, uh, you know, end, and then we have this new heaven and new earth. So you're like, okay, you see some of this. It reminds me of what they believe in uh, Islam uh, with the coming of the Mahdi, Mm -hmm. uh, bringing him back, comes back in chaos and apocalyptic, you know, um, destruction. And and they believe the same thing. Well, many Christians, I think many Christians do fall in this trap and Jewish people see it. They say, you know, you just want all this to come so that, you know, the Armageddon happens and then we're, you know, all have to accept Jesus. Yes. That, that's, that's a, um, that's a often uh, heard accusation. Exactly. And we know that the things that the Bible says are going to happen are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're going to happen. Um, and, yeah, we still have to f- stay focused on the work that we have to Today. do. And our work yeah. is never to promote chaos. No. Absolutely never to promote chaos. So what we see here with Dugan, okay, advising Putin, okay, good buddy of Putin. You see him in, in videos with him, you know, right there with him. Um, he wants to see the rise of kind of Russian nationalism where Russia would expand to the former size and uh, acquire back all of its lost children, okay, from the former Soviet Union, and uh, to push back on the American democratic ideas, okay? Mm. They see that as a threat. And the way he says he sees to do this expansion is kind of a union of religion and nationalism, mm. kind of like the state acts as though it has divine mandate. This does sound like Islam, doesn't it? It does sound a lot like it, okay? So you have now this celebration of authoritarianism. It is only authoritarianism, tyrannical, you have uh, the celebration of military power, economic power, and now religious power kind of all tied in. Mm. So I was digging more into Dugan, Dugan, and he has something. He wrote a book called The Fourth Political Theory. And in it, he said there were basically been three Western-based ideologies. One is classic liberalism, mm. okay, based on free markets, individual rights, rule of laws. That's what our nation was founded mm. on. Then there's communism and fascism. Okay, and he believes that liberalism and communism combined to destroy fascism in World War II, which they kind of did. Okay, because Russia was together with that to get rid of. Uh, to get rid of Hitler. Right. Okay. And then he believes that liberalism allowed communism to die of old age. Okay. (laughs) So with the fall of the Soviet Union. Right. But so he says that there, he wants a union of state power and religion, a fusion of kind of communism, fascism with this religious idea. He thinks that there's great danger in liberalism because of its rampant individual liberty and and its contempt for history okay that's interesting where and and that's true we see that today as they burn down statues and so forth he's got that right there's there's hints of truth in everything you're saying that just i think that's what draws people in well it's good because so he's opposed to all of this progress progressivism Mm -hmm. we're opposed to progressivism right yes okay nimrod the father of the progressive movement we've always said um he wants this is interesting larger states but not globalism mm-hmm. okay so we see this push toward globalism with the world economic forum and the great reset is an effort toward globalism we look at that and we go no we don't want that he doesn't want that either he wants powerful states with russia being the most powerful the most state powerful. yes you know and in doing that he wants, he says he wants to return to traditional forms of spirituality, whatever that means. Um, it, it's not, like I said, there's a little bit of truth mixed in here. I, I'm also hearing a, a hint of 1984 here with the three, maybe three large states, uh, you know, always warring and never, never. Well, yes. Yeah, it, it's, it sounds, okay, if that's what he's saying, you know, he could, he could be talking about United States. Uh, Russia and China, China as exactly. the three major powers. Exactly. You know? Yeah. You know, um, it's funny. Dugan 
<laughs> actually said, he wants to, pervert, to preserve the geopolitical sovereignty of Russia, China, Iran, and India. And that's an interesting mm. one because they safeguard the freedoms of all people. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Russia, China, Iran. <laughs> Bastions of freedom, Bastions Kathy. Of Bastions of freedom. Exactly. <laughs> um, but Dugan sees this fourth political theory as the only way for Russia to survive. If Putin has bought into this, right. then this is that kind of geopolitical religious mandate that he sees as the only form of his survival. Well, well, there you go. When you, when you have an animal backed into a corner yes. and trying to survive, they get dangerous. And if this is about survival, and I've heard that theory as well because Russia is dying. Yes. Their population is dying. Yes. You know, so uh, just the fact that needing more young men to serve in the wars and things of that nature could be motivating him. And there's there's a lot of motivation. There's a lot. And Russia was dying, like, culturally. They, they mm -hmm. didn't have the influence they had before. So I think he does see this yeah, as a form of, right. of survival. Uh, Dugan has a new book out that um, is called The Great Awakening versus The Great Reset. Well, quite honestly, almost any Christian could write that book. Mm. But his idea of the Great Awakening is not, not the, the, the idea that we would think of as believers of the Great Awakening. So in that book, he's, he's saying globalism is bad. I agree. Okay. But his Great Awakening includes this kind of hybrid where Russia is a powerful state mm. with some kind of weird spiritual mandate that fuses it with communism and fascism. Wow. No, you that's know, not the Great Awakening that I'm aware if, of. If Christians see him as truly trying to defend Western Christianity and buy into this, they they, they, they think this is all a good thing. Exactly, and yeah. that's what you and I have seen, and that's we why have. we wanted to talk about it. Yeah. You know, I want to bring this to a conclusion. I've, I've shared with the audience before that the Bible verse, Bible verse that motivates my life, it's not pretty, <laughs> so to speak, but it's Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed by lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Almost everything I do in my ministry work and in what we're doing here is to work against that. Exactly. Okay. That includes, of course, knowledge of Torah. Uh, absolutely. It's the foundation. It's the foundation. But it includes Torah then is the foundation of all truth in mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. So this this seeking after the truth is so critical. You know, I don't think people in gen in general desire to be ignorant, okay, or desire to have a lack of knowledge. They just kind of get caught up with their day-to-day -day lives. You know, they don't have time to do their own research and check out the details of every news story. But I think that's what was happening in, in Germany when Hitler was on the rise, is people had their own lives and they right. weren't paying attention. So so when we look back and we say, how did they let this happen? Mm. I think it's because they were just so focused on them, sure. their own lives. and They um, wanted to put food on the table. If somebody came along and said, I can do that. Exactly. Yeah. You know what? We're facing all of these, um, you know, price uh, price increases in food, rising inflation. If someone mm. comes around and says, I can do that, mm. we'll be just as susceptible, mm. you know. But, you know, when we've got major news stories like covid for instance mm -hmm. that it impacts every aspect of our lives and quite honestly this war in ukraine is now going to be impacting every sure. aspect of our lives we really owe it to ourselves to search out the truth Amen. you know uh, now you can start it's a good place to start to go to a trusted news or information so source but even then you should use this source as kind of a jumping off point to do your own legwork most of us, if we're honest, you know, we can identify. People say to me, well, I don't have the time for that. Okay. <laughs> the people in uh, Nazi Germany, you know, Nazism was rising. They didn't have the time for right. that. But I would challenge everyone in our audience to identify wasted time in your day and repurpose it. Okay. Mm. Scrolling through Facebook, watching TV. I would, I would advise that you identify that time, and I guarantee you've got that time, Yeah. okay? And you need to repurpose that for truth-seeking time, which obviously would include reading your Bible, Yeah. you know? That's a great place to start. <laughs> <laughs> the place to the start. The place to start. You know, the enemy is intent on deceiving all of us, and we should never take for granted that we are immune to his attempts 
or that the church is immune to his attempts because we've seen over and over that that is not true. Amen. His goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And one his fa- his favorite strategies is lying. Yeah. You know, so he has, and he's going to find plenty of people willing to lie for him. So we see that all around. That's okay? for sure. So I encourage our audience, start with what we've been saying today. Go look up Alexander Dugan and his fourth political theory. You can pull it right up free. On, I, I got it for free online and mm. read it. Um, I know it's not fun. It's like not as fun as like a walk on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> but perhaps you can find like a happy middle ground and read about Dugan as you lie on your blanket on the beach. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and more importantly, you know, pray every day for wisdom, discernment, revelation, divine revelation. Um, James 1, 5, 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. All we have to do is ask, ask. folks. We yeah. just have to ask. He will talk to us. That's one of my uh, most consistent prayers mm-hmm. is for wisdom in this time of deception. That's a great prayer. Yeah. Proverbs 2, 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So is this the knowledge? that I mentioned before in uh, Hosea 4, 6, that without it, you're being destroyed. Mm -hmm. He gives this knowledge. And when you ask for it, he gives it to you. So I'm telling you, pray like Solomon prayed for wisdom, but realize that even the wisest man in the world allowed himself to be led astray. Right. And, 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 you know, leaving the the first love, the love for his God and, uh, and and the wisdom in his word, um, which was so sad. It's tragic that this man had that kind of wisdom and still allowed himself to be pulled away. Exactly. And don't ever allow yourself to be pulled away from your first love. Right. You know, one of the best ways to get revelation from God is through obedience. Mm. And we've talked about that over and over on Amen. this podcast. Um, get yourself realigned. Get back on the path. Repent, repent of your sin and turn back to God. That's the best way to get yeah. go to get going on this search for truth. You're not going to find truth if you're walking away from God. You are mm. not going to find it. So you have to make teshuva, turn 180 degrees, and and turn back toward God. You know, hang on to God as if your life depends on it, mm. because really, it does. It does. And remember what the psalmist said, those who love your Torah have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Shalom. Shalom, everyone. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time on Torah Talk.